Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, William. William Kentridge. What what a pleasure to have you on the phone. Thank you so much for being part of the quarantine tapes. I'm really delighted. Good. Happy to be happy to be with you. Thank you so much. Tell me, where where do I find you, and how are you spending these these months? Maybe these last three months. Yes, you find me in my house in Johannesburg in the kitchen. Um. <laughs> Okay, we're in going through our proper winter cold snap, so it's about zero degrees outside. Mm. Although in Johannesburg, winter always ends at 11 a.m., so by noon tomorrow it will be up to 18 degrees or so, centigrade, um, 65 or so Fahrenheit. I've been, it's paradoxical, but uh, as a visual artist who works in a studio, and I have a studio in the garden of the house, it's been a kind of wonderful three months of quiet work in the studio, undisturbed by exhibitions, undisturbed by travel demands, while at the same time being completely aware of mayhem and chaos that is in the area just outside the studio. Mayhem that's common to all the world, but is also inflected with the particular South African and Johannesburg particularities. Tell me about that. Well, in a strange way, I mean, we're at the end of our lockdown here in uh, South Africa, um, but we're at the end just as our infections are really rising extremely rapidly. And this is because the lockdown, which, you know, for people who live in comfortable houses with comfortable gardens, you know, the majority of white people in South Africa do, it was quite a comfortable time. But for a huge number of of black South Africans who historically are living in townships, in informal settlements, social distancing is almost impossible. The loss of income um, and jobs has been enormous, and it is simply not possible to continue people not going to work and not having an income. There isn't the scale of social benefit to support the entire country during extended lockdown. So we're stuck with this paradox that the economy has just opened up at most probably just the time when it should be most closed down. So there's, that is the, is the broader picture of what's happening in South Africa. In a strange way, also, we get pushed back into a, in a kind of apartheid world. Mm. It's of a greater separation when people all had to go back to their own houses for our first 10 weeks of lockdown. You had you know, privileged elite sequestered in their compounds and their houses. The working class, the black working class, sent back to their townships and the kind of the the movement between those areas was severely restricted. In a way, the clock has turned backwards with this so pandemic. Turned back in a way, also it was quite a punitive uh, lockdown in the sense that it was very policed by not just the police force, but by the army. And it suddenly had the sense of, again, of the South African army keeping black people in their townships away from other parts of the country. That's eased. That's changed. That there was enough of an outcry about for that to have changed. 
But it's still quite a Puritan feeling. For example, for the whole of the major part of the lockdown, there was no alcohol sold in South Africa hmm. or cigarettes. And in fact, about tobacco products still cannot be sold. They eased up on liquor sales. So that is possible now. I've sort of gone down to the last quarter of the bottle of whiskey before that was lifted. But um, it's been a good working time in the studio. It must be it must be very odd. On the one hand, you have what's happening inside the studio, and I'd love to ask you what what you've, you know, what kind of inspiration you've found in this moment, what kind of work you're doing. And on the other hand, as you said, the mayhem outside. Before getting to the work uh, that you're doing in the student yeah. st studio, how how do uh, does does the United States and all the unrest that is happening in the United States play itself in South Africa? And what do terms like, let us say, since you mentioned the police, what does defund the police mean to South Africans at this moment? Um, in a strange way, so many of the things that you're going through in America have been the bread and butter in South Africa mm. for so many decades and have been so much under questions of consideration so, for example, it seems that America and Europe is catching up five years later to South Africa in terms of what to do with colonial and racist monuments and monuments to people who are involved with slavery and those questions. Those are all questions that were at the forefront of student uprisings in South Africa four or five years ago. Mm. Um, there's also a sense of, oh, my God, again, does the world have to pay obeisance to America, the great God America? even in setting its political agenda. So there's a kind of resentment to America assuming that they are somehow both the leaders of the moral good and of the moral evil, but whichever way you look at it, they're still the big dog in town. So there's some resentment against that. So there's been, there's been, some, um, there's been some solidarity protests outside the American embassy, but of a very small nature. Um, compared to what happened in Europe. I mean, places like Belgium are just waking up to their colonial past now, whereas the question of colonialism and how it impacts and its long-term uh, questions are uh, very much within the general discourse uh, of South Africa. It was a little bit the same after 9-11 when suddenly America woke up to, um, to discovering, oh, we are not all invulnerable. We are also vulnerable people. To say, well, welcome, join the rest of the world. You know, you you were um, mentioning you were mentioning the monuments, and it made me yeah. think so much about your your ruminations and your thoughts about memory and forgetting, and perhaps even yeah. one could say the the ethical and ethical needs at certain moments of forgetting. What do you feel is happening now that will perhaps, unfortunately or not, be forgotten? Well, it's always a question of what you do with old old monuments. It's obviously it's one of the things where there are there's no good solution. There's no good solution. There are different uh, bad and less bad solutions, but there are a lot of imaginative solutions that are possible. So it doesn't work to pretend that those figures in history didn't exist or that they didn't leave their particular legacies behind them. But it also doesn't work to leave them still on their pedestals as if they're historical position is unchanged. So you need something that both acknowledges the history, but shifts it. 
And I think there, there are different uh, possibilities. One is to take people off their pedestals, literally, remove the sculpture from the pedestals, put them down on the ground, even dig a, a kind of depression in the ground and you can go down to see them, should you so wish, and leave the pins open for new thoughts, new, new figures, new sculptural events. There was a very good solution in Belgium where they had King Leopold who presided over the death of so many millions of people in his private fiefdom of the Congo, where I think in Ostend, I think it was, in a seaside town in yes. Belgium, there was one of many statues of King Leopold on his plinth and at the base, a number of Africans with their grateful hands reaching up towards him in an attitude of thankfulness. And some clever person simply went along and cut off those hands. So you had suddenly had a monument of King Leopold presiding over a whole series of people with amputated arms, a reference to the amputation of hands of people who hadn't reached their rubber quotas in the uh, in the Congo colony at that time. So there are different ways of doing You know, you can have a whole graveyard of old monuments the way they have in Moscow, where all the portraits of Lenin, Engels, Stalin, and Marx are gathered together uh, in a rather astonishing garden of one of their museums, where you see every different style of sculpture and how you, there you are know, 20 different ways of carving a Kalashnikov rifle out of granite. 30 different ways of making a portrait of uh, Lenin or Stalin. So there are different solutions uh, to it. And I think the very fact of the plethora of solutions shows shows a kind of indeterminacy, a provisionality of all of our decisions about how to deal with the past. And the very fact that it's an unsolved problem is the one hope we have, I think. You know, it, it, it made me think of, of uh, I don't know in which book of David Lowenthal, who's a phenomenal geographer, he was speaking about the Elgin marbles and the Elgin marbles in at the British Museum. He said, they, in, yeah. all, in all likelihood, they won't be returned. But what can happen productively is that the the very the very uh, dialogue discourse and discordant discourse that exists around the elgin marbles should be on the walls for people to understand that museums are so often uh, anyway uh, the the product of plunder so let's let's expose it and then i went to athens and in athens the acropolis museum has all those spaces that are empty that let you understand that the 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 real the real treasures are not in athens but are at the british museum so there's a dialogue there that doesn't mean that the solution is perfect but at least it makes people think i think it i mean it is a question that you know there is very recent colonial plan, which one feels, how can it stay where it is? But there's also a kind of um, essential identity politics, which becomes impossible. Mm-hmm. Saying every Madonna needs to go back to Italy. Every piece of sushi should only be eaten in Japan. Every piece of classical art must go back to, to Greece to separate the world into its tiny, into its tiny different uh, private corners, where our history should show us that the one hope we have is a kind of cosmopolitanism, mm. a cross-pollination, a misunderstanding of different cultures, a mistranslation of, of different elements. So I think there isn't a good single solution. There are many bad solutions. Somebody there are many bad <laughs> solutions, but there are many. There was a question, for example, when Cape Hanley was made, yeah. which was a museum saying, let us show the proper ritual significance of 
works of art from Africa and Oceania, so that they're not just seen as abstract pieces of aesthetic enjoyment, but have a particular meaning. And so a lot of them were taken from the Louvre, where they'd been elevated, where they'd been sort of elevated to works of art to shift across. And for me, both solutions are no good. It's no good to pretend that they don't have this extraordinary aesthetic quality, which has inspired so many people all over the world and does backwards and forwards. And it doesn't work to pretend that they didn't come from a particular context either. So I have a sense when they were in their ambulances being driven from the Louvre to the Cape Branly and backwards and forth, that's when they're at their most authentic, when the <laughs> position fantastic. of them shows the impossible situation. That's fantastic. And yeah. the Elgin marble also, one has a sense of what is it? What is the desire of the marble? And you have the you have the very strange paradox in in Europe, primarily, where you have on the one hand the desperate hanging on to artifacts that have come from the southern hemisphere, from Africa, from other places. At the same time, you have the European borders getting tighter and tighter and more and more guarded against migrants coming from those very places to Europe. So we'll keep their objects, but we'll certainly try to keep the people away. And I think for me, that's also going to be one of the long-term consequences of the pandemic, is that it will give a kind of respectability to some of the worst impulses of people, of self-protection, of not wanting people from other parts of the world to come there, which will now be done on the basis of health and who's infected and who's not infected. You know, uh, Arundhati Roy uh, recently wrote a, a piece about the pandemic being a portal, a possible portal. I take it that for you, from what you just said, that portal might be, uh, might have very dire consequences rather than opening. Well, I think it's, I think it's also an interesting portal. So, for example, you had in Europe and America many um, views on social spending on public health, which would have been anathema to neoliberals until recently, but suddenly became mainstream points of discussion where one understood that you needed a public health system to deal with the pandemic uh, like this. You couldn't just rely on private health uh, health facilities. Um, there was these huge government bailouts for private enterprise, whereas before you would have said private enterprise must sink or swim on its own. Suddenly it became the most common uh, knowledge that you needed state intervention to try to support people's livelihoods. So in that sense, I think it does open, reopen debates about private ownership, about what the uh, responsibility of the state is in supporting its citizens, which had been pushed right to the very margins, margins of political discourse for decades. So in that sense, I think it is a portal. I think there are possibilities. And, you know, what's always interested me so much, uh, I mean, William, in your in your thinking, is this emphasis on ambivalence, but even better said, uncertainty. And you say uncertainty means also leaving the space for many different possible answers and solutions. And we just spoke about solutions, you know, uh, various bad solutions or nearly the dissolution yeah. of a solution. What would productive yeah. uncertainty look like at this moment? In Johannesburg, we have a small art center that, we, that I was instrumental in founding four years ago, which is called the Center for the Less Good Idea. <laughs> I Not love for the it. good idea. I love it. But for, the, but for the less good idea. On the basis that there are so many grand programs, so many grand ideas, you know, to take it as a principle, the 
the first idea you have for a project, a drawing, a book, a film, a story, you start with the big idea, but you need to be open to things that come from the edges, from the periphery. There needs to be a kind of peripheral thinking, like peripheral vision, in which a new connection, not expected with the first good idea, when that emerges, and that's what we call the less good idea, to allow these things uh, to come in, to make a space for provisionality and uncertainty. Um, on the basis that you know, politically as well as in other ways, all the grand ideas, all these huge, all-encompassing ideas have been calamitous. So the only hope is for a number of smaller, separate things that can solve particular problems or work in different ways. So I think that provisionality in that sense gives, it implies a modesty, it implies not believing you're in control of all circumstances not believing that people are just ciphers or pieces of data to be manipulated uh, as you wish. Um, and I think that, that's, for me, the, both the artistic hope, but also it has a political implication buried in it. Ethical and, and political. And I'm, I, I, I think I remember you saying that the name for the Institute came from a saying about doctors in South Africa. Yes, yes, yes. It's a Tswana proverb, which is, If the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor. That's fantastic. If your grand idea is not going to save you, look for other smaller ones at the at the edges. You know, you you you. I was also reminded. I mean, you know that I'm a, a quotomaniac by profession. I was yes. reminded. I was. Re I like how quickly you said yes. I was reminded of this wonderful line by Buñuel. Luis Buñuel said, "I have always been." on the side of those who seek the truth, but I part ways with them when they think they have found it. Yes, I think that, that's a very good, that's one of the very many good aphorisms that you do have. Oh, and good. they should all be paraded because they're all useful and, and they, great. Well, they are, they are useful. You had a very I, nice, You had a very nice quote about parallel lines. So. Oh, I did, I did. I'll, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell it for the for the listeners. Yeah. It was after um, I went to see one of your productions that I. I simply adore of the nose. Um, you had both, right. you had an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum at the at the Modern yeah. Museum. You had um, also a fantastic rendition of the opera at uh, the Met uh, Opera in New York. And we had a conversation at the New York Public Library so many years ago. Yeah. And I remember, yeah. I remember one of the grand moments of that evening was your father was in the front row. Um, I'll, I'll never forget his presence there. I must say, and him crossing the street afterwards, looking dapper with his hat. But I remember quoting Nabokov um, in, his, yeah. in his book on Gogol, talking about digression and what digression is and how to describe Gogol's digressive style. And he says, if two parallel lines do not meet, it is not because meet they cannot, but because they have other things to do. Yeah, for me that's such a great that's such a great thing to hang on to. Why? From the nature Why? Of, Why? Of Why? Well, firstly, it gives so the parallel lines immediately makes one think of Paul Clay's line and his idea of what drawing is, which is taking a line for a walk. And it's always a question: Are you taking the line for a walk, like taking a dog, or is the dog on its leash leading you? Is the line, in fact, leading you? So the railway line, which you assume is is going exactly the way. It's It seems to point, but at a certain point can veer off. And your long-held certainty 
that those lines are in fact forever connected together is a kind of arrogance about uh, certainty of the world. Um, so I think it had to do with that, a mixture of Paul Clay, of lines, of drawing, and certainty. And, and also the, the, the notion of, you know, certainty is always so worrisome because certainty and fundamentalism seem to go together so beautifully. Well, certainty and fundamentalism go together, and certainty always needs to be backed up by an army. You know, in every certain pronouncement, you know, there's going to be someone standing behind the speaker with a gun to enforce that certainty. It's always it's always a claim of certainty, but it's really always only possible with resort with recourse to authoritarianism. You know, I um, in mentioning your father, and I, I I so remember William him crossing. Forty uh, second Street. Um, yes, he, uh, in the traffic, it, well, I think, I think it was raining, and he must be yes. in his late nineties now. Yes, he's he's ninety seven, enjoying his quiet lockdown in London, in his London house, but missing going to the opera and seeing his friends again. And and I I I don't exactly know how to ask you this question, um, but I will nevertheless try. How yes. how do you think, um, or do you think that you're continuing in some form your father's project? Well, I'm working on a project at the moment in the studio, which is a series of films, kind of episodic in form, about making things in the studio, but more specifically making meaning in the studio. And I've discovered that one of the elements of these episodes are either conversations or interrogations of myself in which two versions of myself sit on each side of the table and one questions the other and answers it. Mm. And I discover whether I like it or not, one of them has the tone and the voice of my father, the rational uh, cross-examining one. And the other one is much less certain and kind of tries to bluster his way out of these questions. So he certainly sits you know, deeply within me that's kind of a shock when I hear how much his voice is also in me. Even our activities, he's of a very clear-cut, rational uh, advocate and lawyer. And me being an artist specifically in a way to avoid that uh, rational understanding of the world, to allow much more absurdist, um, illogical understanding. But I think still with an idea of trying to understand what the world is and who we are in it which is, of course, the corollary to what ought we to be doing it. So in the, in the long term, I don't, they don't feel entirely different, although the techniques and methods are obviously very different to each other. Can you say something for our listeners about the work of your father? Well, both my parents were lawyers in South Africa during the height of apartheid, and both in the different ways my father was quite high-profile political cases, and my mother was founding public interest law firm, um, were very vital in one of the different battles against the uh, apartheid system, which was fought on many different ways, between the armed struggle and civil unrest, and also in the field of uh, legal battles in the courts. And in that, they were both very important to the history of law in South Africa, and through that in the struggle against apartheid. I was saying a little bit earlier that um, I wanted to ask you what you're working on uh, in your garden, and you've responded yeah. a little bit. 
what else yeah. what else and also um uh, william what what, yeah. what gives you solace now and what what are you looking at and what are you reading and may i just add one more element what are you yeah. listening to and maybe even viewing if it's in 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 film i'm just curious uh, yes there's a many different uh, questions. questions so there the draw there are drawings in the studio and there are activities in the studio which are filmed like these conversations with myself There's been a series of drawings of trees, large trees, trees the size of the wall of a studio. And on the one hand, there's a pleasure in what it is to accumulate the bits of painting of a tree and gradually grow the tree in the process of uh, painting. It's painted on with ink on different pages of old encyclopedias, and these are then pasted together to make the tree. But you can edit it by adding more pages or prune the tree by cutting pages out and sticking other ones on. So it's a large collage of the tree. So there's a pleasure in the ink and the paper and the making, but it also connects to uh, one of the other projects which has to do about thinking about oracles and sibyls and faith. And there's a, a story about the sibyl, and you would go to consult the sibyl, the Cumaean sibyl outside Naples, to ask her your faith, as we are all kind of wondering about our faith now, with the mm. uncertainty of this virus traveling around the world, well, both as a real threat, sometimes as a as a threat larger in the way it looms in our head than it actually is physically, and sometimes the reverse. But at any rate, the sense of what is our faith is a question in the air. And you would go to the civil and you would ask her your faith, and she in her cave would write your answer on the leaf of an oak tree. And then you would go to the mouth of the cave to pick up your faith to pick up your leaf and find out what your fate was. But always, as you approach the mouth of the cave, there would be a wind that would blow, and the pile of leaves would swirl up. So you never knew if the leaf that you picked was your fate or someone else's fate. So it's about leaves and leaves of book, pages of books that swirl and blow around. But it's also the sense of one's death growing inside of There's a way in which you can think from, we know that from the moment you're born, you're also busy on your way towards an eventual death. But there's a sense of almost growing your death, like growing a tree inside of you. And we feel you've had a good life when the death inside you has grown to be a full-sized tree and fully reached its extent, which can then be relieved. So there's a way in which growing a tree or these paintings of trees are both an acknowledgement of death that comes towards all of us, but a wish for a beautiful, magnificent tree rather than a stunted growth cut off too early, which is what our fear is of all these premature mortalities. So I'm growing trees also. And, um, well, I'd love to ask you what you're you're reading, what you're listening to. What what I'm reading. Yeah, what you're reading, what you're listening to, and what, you know, what might offer you, to to, so, quote, to quote Gershom Scholem, what might offer you shards of hope, perhaps, or not? Okay, so, so Solace is definitely in the studio. The actual physical activity of working, you know, however you're feeling, after two hours in the studio with the paper, with the charcoal and the ink, there's a kind of comfort of the studio saying, come on, it's okay, let's just get to work. It'll go on as long as it does. When it stops going on, that's also okay. 
Um, but this is your space where you should be. So there's a comfort in the in the physical. It feels like it's not waiting. It's getting on with things in the studio. That feels. Whereas so many people, all my friends who are actors, who are musicians, who are dancers, are completely in the situation of being unable to practice their métier. Mm. Here I feel my métier has been given a good space to to flow. I'm reading, what am I reading? At three in the morning, I'm reading old Eric Ambler and Len Dayton thrillers from the 1940s and 50s and 60s. That's when I can't sleep, so I need something that's Easy enough for the sleep. I'm rereading a lot of Mayakovsky because I have a project brewing in my head of uh, Mayakovsky project. So that's that's the serious book that's next to the next to my bed. And because it's Mayakovsky, I'm also listening to more Shostakovich. Um, but when I'm quietly drawing, and I just want something that I'm half aware of, but I don't do a good listening to then somehow a whole lot of uh, Haydn piano music and Haydn symphonies are uh, on my Spotify or Apple Music at the moment. William, what a pleasure to speak to you. And I, I only wish we had more time. Yes, but it's been lovely talking to you. It really, really has been. And, and thank you for indulging me uh, with my quotations, even asking me to, to uh, go back to the, the parallel lines not meeting. I hope we meet soon. And yes, I, I, I really I do. And I, I wish you all the best and a very productive, fruitful time. I look forward to seeing uh, what, what this moment has brought about and seeing many of your trees. Great. Take good Thank care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.